you would, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. Uh, welcome to Missio Day, Wes. If this is your first time with us. I'm excited for uh, you to be with us as we engage in a brand new sermon series um, called God's Good Gift. If you didn't gather from the video, it, it has a sense of romanticism as we will spend the next four weeks talking about sex and sexuality, right? And so, uh, man, I remember, um, I don't know, six to seven months ago when Kurt and I were planning out our sermon series, kind of, kind of afraid of uh, having four weeks of conversations with you about sex. I figured, man, I've probably got uh, one, maybe two really amazing sermons that I could preach from 1 Corinthians 7 about sex, but the more I've dug in to the topic and understanding, the more I have been made aware of sexual brokenness uh, in ways that like just don't scream out uh, in our society, and so I'm really excited about having the opportunity uh, and kind of wishing for more time uh, to dialogue about this topic. Um, we, each year, uh, the past three or four years or so at Missio, at least as long as I've been around, um, we spent some time each January talking about different topics. We would tackle racial reconciliation, we would tackle uh, some aspect of sexuality, we would tackle uh, sanctity of life and uh, foster and adoption as a result of, of that, and we would talk through these social issues that uh, are prominent in our society and always came up. What we always found is each week that we dove into one of those conversations, one week was not near enough time to have a meaningful conversation about those. And so we just, we abandoned that, right? And so we set a rhythm where every so often, different topics have a different cadence, but every so often we would take three to four or five or six weeks and really try to drill in deep to a topic. And so we, sexuality will be this year. Next year, I think we'll look at some racial reconciliation, things like that. So there's a rhythm set up where we'll take a break from our, our study of books. We just finished a sermon series on Jonah. It was a lot of fun. It was really amazing. I grew significantly as a result of that. So I encourage you to go back and, and review some of those that you may have missed or anything like that. Um, but we will begin a series and a discussion using 1 Corinthians 7. So each week we'll revisit 1 Corinthians 7 and look at a different portion of that text. And I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it, right? In Blank We Trust was a sermon series we talked about on the topic of money just, just this summer, I believe, right? And, and the first thing I said in that sermon series was uh, I quoted a BBC article, which is uh, a British news channel, and at least in, from their perspective, in their culture, they uh, said that money was the last taboo of their society, right? And in some ways, I could see that uh, outside of that. What I want to say, though, is, is potentially that the topic we're going to engage in conversation with over the next four weeks probably is even more taboo inside of the context of the church uh, than even money. Right? And so both of them are unique and both of them are necessary. Both of them are good gifts and good things that God has given us that uh, in our sinfulness, 
get distorted. And because of that distorted, bring about discretion and destruction and degradation. And so um, good things that are taken advantage of and misused often become bad things. And I put sex and money kind of in that same category where uh, if used in a proper way inside of the context that God gave us to be used, it's an amazing thing. If used outside of the context that gave us, it can be a very hurtful thing uh, and very harmful Thing to us. And so today we're going to begin talking uh, about sex, which in the church is probably like the, the British broadcast channel uh, news article, is probably the last taboo in the church. Why would I say that, right? Why would I say that sex is the last taboo in the church? Or the, uh, because it's just naturally something that's difficult to talk about, right? Even inside of the context of marriage, how much dialogue do you have uh, about the things that you enjoy sexually and the things that you don't enjoy sexually, right? Probably not a lot, right? The, the thing that uh, always becomes the most awkward for the people that are engaging in uh, premarital counseling becomes this discussion about sex. And oftentimes what has happened is friends of mine who have gotten their premarriage counseling from another source other than myself come back to the conversation with lots of questions because they didn't really dive into it with their particular pastor, right? Because it's something that is extremely challenging to talk to inside the context of a marriage, outside the context of a marriage, and then we have kids, and then we've got to try to figure out how do we explain things to them. And inevitably, they ask questions at the most inopportune time and at inopportune ages, and you have to delicately navigate what's appropriate to teach them, what's inappropriate to teach them. Those are difficult hurdles. And so sex really is one of those things that's a bit of a taboo subject. Sometimes uh, it's difficult to talk with and about because of silence. Like up until a point in our lives, it never got explored, right? We taught uh, a little bit about, we learned a little bit about in eighth grade health class, or we learned from our buddies in the locker room on our sports team, or we learned from the girls that we uh, did our sleepovers with. But really, inside of somebody that was respected and meaningful to you that should have communicated that, as we examine our past, a lot of times those conversations never happen, right? I don't remember having a super intentional conversation with my parents about sex. I remember uh, my mom making a watch uh, with a scripture, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number six, verse 18, that tells us to flee sexual immorality, like, and then having like a, a one-time, semi-uncomfortable conversation over dinner with my parents about that, that my mom primarily talked about and my dad added uh, a few details in. Thank God they're not here today because this would be extremely awkward for them. But uh, they, um, it, it was just awkward, right? And so I, I walked away with probably more questions than were answered. And so in, 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 in trying to seek and discover these answers, sometimes you don't go to the, the greatest of sources. And so we learn wrongly about sex and sexuality. And so we wanna talk about it today. Inside of the church, I grew up in a church and in the very few times that sex or sexuality was the topic of conversation uh, or teaching, it wasn't good, right? It wasn't good. They weren't painting a great picture. It, it, the irony is, is overwhelming to think about how sex in youth group culture gets talked about as is, it is the worst thing in the world. Like it's, it's disgusting, it's, you get all these diseases, you get all these challenges, it's, it's the worst, absolute worst thing in the world that you should avoid at all cost because you wanna save it for your marriage. 
It's like, huh, okay, well, that's, that's good, that's ironic. Like, I get the reality that it has a context, and inside of that context, it thrives and flourishes, but just because it has a context doesn't mean it's an ugly and disgusting and nasty thing outside of that context. And so we grew up, whether we grew up in the church or grew up out of the church, and, and it just dialogue about sex was not something that was a regular part of our life, and so we perceived, we, we, we perceived our own ideas, we perceived things from our interactions with other people that didn't know any more about it than we did, they were just maybe more brave and exploratory to figure things out on their own than we were. And so we have a broken understanding of sexuality. And so throughout the next few weeks, we wanna look at the topic of sex, particularly as it pertains to being a gift from God. A gift from God. We want to understand God's design for it. We want to understand our dilemma that we feel concerning it. We'll spend some time understanding sex inside of God's purposes as well as understanding sex as a part of God's beautiful plan to bring joy to his people and glory to himself. Right? That's really the context in which we want to engage in this conversation. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. And again, for the next four weeks, we're going to revisit 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. So we're really going to exposit all of first, the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But I want to give us a little bit backstory of what's happening inside the Corinthian church. Remember I said a week or two or the week before that, the Corinthian church was a church that had seen explosive growth right, at a very, very, very fast pace. And so with that became lots of new believers, and, 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 and what uh, lots of new believers don't bring about is lots of good direction and wisdom. And so we look at and assess church health by, we've got strong believers, we've got new believers that just became believers, and people that don't know Jesus, and all three of those people should be represented in our congregation, and they are. They are here today, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But the First Corinthians church pace, uh, growth has outpaced its ability to develop leaders, and so that, that caused and created some friction and tension around some topics. One of them was sexuality. Uh, Ameri American sexuality is, is, is rampant, but it, we act as if the, where we've arrived to in our culture from a sexual standpoint is, is first and new and fresh. And as we examine lots of cultures from the past, we see that they engaged in just as much expression of their sexuality as we do. And so that was true of the Corinthian church. There were people that were believers, new believers and unbelievers that were just running free, expressing sexuality inside and outside of the context of God's design. And it was creating problems. Right, So much that it was creating problems that some of the people in the church uh, write Paul and say, hey, you know, because uh, our, the, the, the sexuality that has overtaken the church is not one that is biblical, we should just avoid sex altogether. And Paul writes back to correct them. And so that's kind of what we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter number seven. But chapter six concludes with a section addressing immorality in the church at Corinth. There was a major problem. There was lots of confusion, tons of brokenness surrounding the topic in the church at Corinth. And this section really begins at chapter one where a specific sexual sin is addressed and really concludes with the command and instruction of 1 Corinthians chapter number six, 18, that verse that my mom had put on that watch, flee sexual immorality, right? And so we pick up on the heels of that conversation, that communication from Paul to the church with 1 Corinthians chapter number seven. So let's read verse one through three. 
Bible says this, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so these are things and questions they wrote Paul about, because some of the believers were concerned with the amount of sexual expression that was happening inside of the church. And their conclusion that they came to is the continuation of verse one, where it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul responds, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. This is the word of the Lord. So we want to look here and briefly just understand what is happening. What we see in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7 in verses 1 through 3 and then continuing on throughout the rest of the chapter is Paul really writing to the Corinthians and correcting their wrong thinking, right? They had come to this conclusion because so many were engaged in perverted sexual expressions. Uh, Those of them that weren't were so taken back that they began lobbying for celibacy as the only legitimate answer to their problem and what should be the general rule for all believers, Corinthians made the conclusion that the best life is the one that happens without sex, right? And, and even thinking through their logic, like what would they think would become of their, their society? What would they think would become of like the perpetuation of their family name? What would, what would become of the perpetuation of, of their, their citizenship and their country growth and all the things that come along with reproduction as a result of sex? Like right, so you can see the illogical conclusion that they come to that sex should be something that we just strike from the record and something that we should never, ever, ever again participate in. And Paul goes on to correct them. He addresses the conclusion that some in Corinth were making that it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. And Paul responds with a positive instruction. It says that, that, that sexual relationships are supposed to be, and in God's design, are designed and created between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and are good, and it is a good thing in the context of marriage. That good doesn't mean like it's an exciting thing, or it doesn't mean that it's a, a fun thing. It doesn't mean anything like that, although sex can be those things. What the word good means is it is a rightful thing. It finds its proper place inside of that relationship between a husband and a wife. Now we'll spend more time dialoguing about the practical nature of how that works itself out in coming weeks. Really we wanna focus on today is our thought process, our understanding, our viewpoint of sex and sexuality. Sex, we see, as Paul says, it should be the giving of oneself. That, that in verse three, it's the, the idea that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. It's, a, it's an act of service. It's an act of giving that should be given both physically and emotionally as one person gives of themselves to the other person. Next week, we're gonna look at oneness and intimacy and how intimacy gets explored through sexuality and all the things that surround things that may not necessarily be sexuality rob from our sexual intimacy. Right? That's the idea that Paul's trying to communicate them. That in giving up your rights to serve the other person and that other person doing the same thing, you create intimacy and you aid intimacy that isn't isolated to only sex, but sex is certainly a part of. Right? And so some in Paul's day, some in our day have decided and concluded that sex is something that you do with your body and it isn't sinful at all. 
Others have concluded that since sex is something that you do with your body, it is automatically sinful, right? And so we live in this weird dichotomy that isn't isolated only to sexuality, but certainly works itself out in the conversation of sexuality, that there is a, there is a difference or a dichotomy that pins both the spiritual and the physical against one another, right? And then that's not a biblical understanding. There's nothing that we look around here that uh, spiritual things don't have physical elements attached to, right? It's a both and, it's never an either and or. But the lie that Satan continually tells us is that we can separate the physical from the spiritual, and it just doesn't happen that way. And sex is certainly one of those areas, right? And so we summarize this text this morning and really present our big idea this morning that we want to spend the rest of our time together unpacking is this. Sex is a good gift. Sex is a good gift designed by a good God for the good of creation, right? Sex is a good gift designed by a good God for the good of creation. And sometimes, and some people in here potentially, it's the first time they ever heard that. It's the first time they ever heard that talked about inside the church. Right? And so I hope that as we dialogue about this, as we unpack and we process a lot of sexual brokenness over the next few minutes, that we feel a calm of peace provided for us in the spirit, knowing that it is something that is good, that he created, even if we've been harmed by the brokenness that's come along with it, that in its design and in God's intention, sex is a good thing. It's not a dirty thing. It's not a gross thing. It's a beautiful thing. And so let's examine this in a couple ways. The first thing I want us to see and understand this morning is that God designed sex for connection. God designed sex for connection, right? Designed it for connection. Sex isn't a thing that can exist by itself. By design, sex is meant to bring connection. It brings connection to the participants inside of the sexual relationship, but it also uh, provides tremendous connection between God and God's image bearers. There are things that express through sexual intimacy that, that rival and, and reveal and point us to a greater good that God in himself has created us to bear his image and to practice these things. Sex inside of God's design is a connector. Sex inside of God's design acknowledges its connection to something beyond personal, physical pleasure, right? There's, there's beautiful and glorious celebratory things that we get to experience as a, as a result of sex, right? It's connected and it's linked to the blessing of children, right? You, you, you don't have children unless someone has sex, right? You may, like we, in our instance, we don't have any biological children. So there wasn't a child that was biologically created from our sexual interactions, but somebody had sex and Richard was birthed, right? And so sex uh, inevitably becomes uh, something that God births more of his creation through. So it's linked to the blessing of children. It's also linked to the blessing of pleasure, right? And we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit. It causes humanity and relationships to flourish. Remember I just said the Corinthians were a bit short-sighted in their understanding of sex when they were willing to just to walk away from it and think that life would be better without it. Their society would have discontinued flourishing had they have stuck and walked out that conclusion, 
right? We understand that. Sex is something that flourishes in our society through the birthing of children and the continuation of God's image. Sex outside of God's design builds secrecy. While sex inside of God's design builds intimacy. We'll explore that in more depth next week. But God has granted us this beautiful gift of connection that not only provides us pleasure, but provides us the opportunity to in that pleasure reflect his image. Because sex inside of God's design is connected to God's glory, right? Sex inside of God's design, what are we talking about inside of God's design? Paul just already instructed us. Inside the design of a woman and a man who are husband and wife, right? Inside that design, sex is an amazingly beautiful thing connected to God's glory. It is first and foremost as a function of being made in the image of God and is primarily a practice that we engage in to bring into existence more humans that bear God's image. It is the result of God's good creation and also necessary for the continuation of God's good creation. And we see and understand that um, we see and understand that sex isn't just for the perpetuation of his creation, but also for the good pleasure of his current image bearers. We see that in our understanding of biology. We see that in our understanding and study of the Bible or bibliology. Right? As, we, as, we, as we read scriptures, if you've ever read through scriptures and were unaware of the Song of Solomons, you, you were probably pretty shocked that morning when you were pouring over that with your coffee because there is a, a bit of, of a holy and righteous and rightful eroticism that is written in that context for God's people. Right? And so it wasn't this taboo thing to God and his created and his intention and his design. It was such a beautiful thing, so much so that in our biology, he created parts of our body that have no other use than for sexual pleasure. Right? Think about that. Created our bodies with body parts that have no other earthly use other than sexual pleasure. Right? And then on top of that, Song of Solomons, which was so erotic that young Jewish boys were not allowed to read it until they had come of age, right? I mean, it's, it's intense, right? If you're a married couple, read it together, right? It is intense, and, and, and it really helps us form a proper perspective of, of sex. And so we see in this, in our biology, in our bibliology, the way God created us and the things that God has written about, that God is in favor of sex, right? More than that, God is in favor of good sex, right? It doesn't have to be atrocious. We'll see that sexual brokenness invades every aspect of our lives, including sexuality, and it makes it an awkward, ugly, sometimes dirty, and challenging thing because of different means. And over the next four weeks, we're going to explore all of them. It is not gross. It should not be worshiped as God himself, but it should be enjoyed. But even in that enjoyment, even in that pleasure, even in that joy that has created to be enjoyable, we see that creation isn't ultimate, right? Even in God's good design, the way he's created sexuality, that enjoyment isn't what is ultimate. As we see that the joys of creation were designed by God to be enjoyable. But that joy wasn't designed to be the end, but rather a means to the end, right? Right? 
So God's good pleasure, the, 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 the good things, the enjoyableness that we get out of it, the joy that we get from, of our, from within our sexual relationships wasn't created to be the end. And when that becomes the end, things get out of sorts. And that's where we experience the sexual brokenness that we experience. It was designed and given to us as a means to point us to the end. Right, is that, is that making sense? Sex is a good thing, a pleasurable thing. It's a joyful thing, it is enjoyable thing. It is not the ultimate end though. The ultimate end is not pleasure. The ultimate end is that we see a God who is ultimately satisfying, right? And so even the pleasure, the enjoyment, the satisfaction that we get in the context of our marriage from sexuality is really meant to direct us towards the greater joy the greater satisfaction that is only found in Jesus. That all sounds great, doesn't it? Right? But inevitably, what we misunderstand, we will misuse. Right? What we misunderstand, we will misuse. And sex outside of God's design, outside of the context of a husband and a wife committed in covenant, a lifelong covenant, Sex outside of that leads to degradation and destruction, right? And we can see that, we can experience that. Every single one of us in the room feel the weight of that in one way or the other. Some more seriously, some, some more casually, but we've all experienced sexual brokenness in one way or another. And it creates challenges, so much so that even sex inside of God's beautiful design becomes challenging, becomes frustrating, becomes difficult, right? So we want to spend some time talking about that. We'll see humanity's dilemma with sex brings corruption. Humanity's dilemma with sex brings corruption. C.S. Lewis, Lewis writes about sexuality in chapter number five of his book, Mere Christianity. He spends a whole chapter talking about it. Inside of that chapter, he recalls an interaction that he has with a group of guys at his local barbershop. Right, I'm, I'm fond of local barbershop. Man, I don't... Our, my barbershop that I go to has long waits and it can be frustrating and challenging, but I love the dialogue. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not helpful at all, but it gives me a good window into the culture that I reside in as unbelieving men talk about things that you talk about at the barbershop, right? So C.S. Lewis is in the 1940s, is in this barbershop with this group of men having a dialogue and the topic of sexuality comes up. Right, And so he engages them in this conversation. And he recalls that in that conversation, the consensus that the participants inside this barbershop come to is that sex ultimately, at its, at its best, is nothing more than an appetite that's physical that needs to be satisfied and to be satisfied at all costs. Right? And they envisioned and, and talked about and dialogued about a day where sexual appetite would be commonly satisfied at all cost. Further in the conversation, he began to talk about the, 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 the dichotomy that they were kind of left in in that if sex is just an appetite, is only an appetite that must be satisfied and must be satisfied at all costs, at the same time that sexual appetite will never be satisfied. 
right? And there's a continual perpetuation of this cycle that as you get more sexual interaction and sexual expression, as you pump your mind and your brain and your life full of sex, sexuality that isn't in the context of, of marriage, it only becomes a self-perpetuating cycle, right? And many of you have experienced that where you've sought things from sexuality that sexuality never gave you, left you feeling more hollow, more lonely, more dark. In many ways, we see the, the, the reality of the things that they were talking about played out in our over-sexualized society, one that has removed sexuality from its rightful context. Right? A couple of examples, just to create some tension. Pornography is a trillion dollar industry. Trillion dollar industry. To put that in perspective, that's massive. Right? <laughs> Annually, the pornography industry grosses more than, than Hollywood. That's okay, that's okay. Here's what, here's what really stuck out to me as how massive of a problem that this is. Pornography, as a trillion-dollar industry, annually, each year, grosses more profit than the NBA, the MLB, and the NFL combined. Right? I don't know the details of LeBron's contract, but I know he moved from Cleveland all the way to L.A. because they're paying him lots and lots of money. And that's one player inside of one organization listed inside of a one player on one team inside of one organization. So putting that in the context is insanity, right? It's insanity how sexually depraved our society is, so much so that even our love and worship of sports, which is staggering, is outpaced by our love and obsession with pornography. Insanity. This warped appetite that Lewis and his comrades were uh, uh, dialoguing about extends beyond just pornography, as if that's not a massive enough problem. Sexuality governs most of the plot lines of the motion pictures that we experience and a lot of our favorite TV shows, right? TV show that just went off the air, and I, you know, I watched it, uh, is Scandal. And the, the entire plot line is wrapped around sexual scandal inside of the White House, right? And that's not an uncommon thing. Most of the shows, that becomes the predominant plot line. More staggering than that is that 92% of all top 20 Billboard songs across every single genre, including my beloved country music, are about sex, right? I lost some of you, but I gained a lot more affection from some of you than I lost. But think about it. And, I, and as, I, as I've, I've, I've allowed my mind to look at one form of music as disgusting and nasty because of the ways that they talked about a certain thing more subtly, the type of music that I enjoy listening to perhaps talks about it equally as disgustingly equally as much and worships it and creates this tension in our lives where we're constantly inundated with media and communication that only talks about sex. 92% of top Billboard songs are about sex. 
Furthermore, there are apps, sites, programs, websites created for the sole purpose of hooking up and having sexual interactions. The research is a bit. On Craigslist, there is a casual encounter section where local people can hook up to have sex with one another. There are dating apps and websites such as Tinder. Not sure if Ashley Madison is still a thing, but at one point, Ashley Madison was a site that was created where you could very inconspicuously get an account and find some other woman or some other man that was interested in an extramarital affair, and both of you could have an extramarital affair on your spouse together, right? We see this in almost every other venue. We see that sex sells, right? And it is the primary marketing tool used to market products that have nothing at all to do with sex. It's always super confusing to me. I, I, was, I was in an airplane one time and we were flying and uh, I don't remember the name of the air, the magazine that they put in every airline, but whatever, they sell you all the, the cool things that you, can't, like, you really have no function for in life, but in that moment you feel like you have to have every single thing. Uh, like, what am I gonna do with this pillow that heats up? Like, I'm not gonna do anything with that. But, uh, I was flipping through, turned the page, and like there was this full page ad of a 1940s style pinup, right? One word at the top said curious, and then there was a link that had nothing to do with sexuality at the bottom. It was like a tools. It's like a snap-on tools ad or something crazy like that, or a craftsman tool ad back in the day. It was a curious, half-naked lady dressed up in a pinup in a really seductive, uh, seductive pose, and said curious and then craftsman tools or snap-on tools or whatever URL listed at the bottom. It's crazy. Even with the proliferation of sexuality at an all-time high, people, though, are no more fulfilled. Time Magazine wrote just last October 2017 about this, this society that we live in, in this society that we live in currently, or at least one year ago, dissatisfaction and loneliness were at all-time highs. Depression was, was rising. More people were uh, under the influence of medication as a result of their emotional health. It's not a bad thing. I think that can be a beautiful thing. But why is that? People are no more fulfilled and are more lonely now than at any other time in history. And these men that Lewis was dialoguing with in the barbershop were minimally correct that this was an appetite that would not be satisfied, that it was in fact a cycle that would continue to perpetuate itself. And oftentimes, this, this, this cycle of seeking satisfaction and sexual gratification becomes a cycle that perpetuates itself into abuse of other image bearers, right? And I don't have to talk too much about the emotionally, the emotional scars and the depths of uh, difficulty that you have in life as a result of some being somebody that was abused either as a child sexually, abused as a woman in high school or middle school or college or, or whatever context of your life was in, man or woman, there are people all over this room and all over our neighborhoods that feel the effects deeply of sexual abuse, right? It's horrific. It is absolutely 
horrific. The wounds go deeper than almost any other type of abuse. The, the implications uh, go higher than almost any other types of abuse. As we've, as we've gone through our foster care training and, and taken sexually abusive specific classes, we've learned about the chemical uh, shifts that happen in a certain person's brain. So like their, their sexual abuse causes them to not be able to think logically about certain things. The impacts are massive. And appetites that were once satisfied simply through the form of imagination by reading a magazine or viewing a website or watching a movie so often manifest themselves in reality, leaving behind them a trail of people that have been sexually assaulted, sexually abused, right? You guys know the brokenness you feel as a result of sexual indiscretion. Many of us all, many of us, including myself, know all too well the guilt, the shame, the fear, the anxiety that is associated with sexual brokenness, both as a victim and as a perpetuator, right? Just because you weren't victimized, but because you were villain a villain towards somebody else that was a victim doesn't mean you no less carry around equal amounts of shame, guilt, fear, anxiety. It's insane. Some of us can form this idea that this is limited and isolated to men. Of course, those of you that have been experienced, uh, those of you that have experienced sexual brokenness know that that's not true, but in her book, Unhooked, Subtitle, How Young Women Pursue Sex, Delay Love, and Lose at Both. Laura Sessions Step found that young women who, in an effort of self-empowerment, have embraced, and, and have embraced, uh, embraced casual sex in a, in a way that's most common among men, still find themselves unsatisfied. Many of the women used in her research described embracing a hookup culture that promised to fill their deepest desires of power and control and in the end left them feeling more hopeless and more helpless and more difficult and more abandoned than they ever could have humanly and possibly wrapped their mind around or imagined. Right? Over and over again, Example after example, we see that sex outside of God's design corrupts God's creation. What was meant to, in God's design, bring freedom of expression brings enslavement. What was meant to, in God's design, be a blessing becomes a burden outside of God's design. What was meant to satisfy us inside of God's design leaves us no less unsatisfied outside of God's design. Sexuality outside of God's design is an abuse of one's body, meaning that everyone, play, everyone who plays the game gets hurt. And the wounds that are left in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds run deep. First Corinthians chapter number six, we started 
dialoguing about it in our introduction this morning, verse 18, the rest of the verse says this. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Then it goes on to say, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his body. Meaning that the penalties run deeper, the uh, brokenness is harder, the shame is more challenging to overcome than any other type of sin, right? Serious. And it can be easy for us as primarily believing people in light of all of this corruption around us in our society that we become somehow immune to our culture's worship of sex. That for somehow, some reason, we are left untouched because we aren't the worst of what our culture offers. Right? We can, we can find a story of, of more sexual perversion than our story. We can find a, a documentary that displays more depravity than we've ever been a part of. There's, there's dirtier sights out there than the ones that we look at. There, there's, there's people across the street and down the street that have had more sexual partners than I have. And so we take a look internally at our sexual brokenness and we look around as what's happening and says at least we're not as bad as they are. The truthful reality is that none of us are immune to the effects of sexual brokenness. None of us. We all feel them. Because of all the horrific things that we have seen or the the, the horrific things that we have heard concerning sexuality, because of the way sex was talked about in our homes or the way we were taught about sex in our church, we look at sex as if it's gross. As if it's dirty, as if it's necessary, but not to be enjoyed. Like some of the Christian believers, Corinthians believers, we even believe that life would honestly just be easier without it. It's complicated our relationships, it's frustrated our marriages, it's left us experiencing difficulty and wanting nothing more than to be able to freely express ourselves sexually with a person that God created and designed and gifted us to do that with. Yet we can't. Others of us have put so much expectation and such a high value on sex, even inside of the church, even in the context of a monogamous monogamous heterosexual relationship in marriage, we look to gain from sexuality what we can only gain from a relationship with Jesus. In doing so, we place expectations on others perhaps even our spouses, for the desire of satisfaction to be met with their physical sexuality, but we desire something of them that will not come apart from the relationship with Jesus. And so we see that in the gospel of Jesus, that sex is an amazing gift. Sex is an amazing gift, but it is an awful God. It's an amazing gift, but it is an awful God. And so sometimes in our sexual brokenness, sometimes in our lack of understanding, sometimes in our miss 
understanding of what sexuality is and how God has designed and created sex, we look towards heterosexual monogamy to be the savior for our lives, right? It was such a broken thing that if I just get this right, all will be well. If I just quit sleeping around from person to person and I commit to a marriage, my life will be fulfilled. The goal of Christianity is not heterosexual monogamy, though. It is Christ-likeness, right? God redeems us, grows us, sanctifies us, and strengthens us to reflect his image. We see that sex will not save us. Only Jesus can save us. Sex will not satisfy us. Only Jesus can satisfy us. Sex will not complete us. Only Jesus will complete us. Sex will not make us whole. Only Jesus can make us whole. Sexual intimacy is just a small reflection of that perfect, all-satisfying intimacy that can only be found in our connection to Jesus, right? Community and community with God was our deepest need. And so even when we express our sexuality with our spouse, within the boundaries of God's design, and our deepest need isn't met by God, but gets placed on them, the blessing of sex will become burdensome. As we'll inevitably put unjust expectations on ourselves to provide satisfaction and wholeness that only Jesus can provide. And in doing so, we showcase our worship of the gift of sex more than our worship of the gift giver that in his goodness has given us sex. So I want us to see in the gospel that uh, Jesus' death, Jesus is coming to earth, walking a perfect life, living out proper sexuality, uh, absent of the context of a marriage. He did not participate. He perfectly lived this life, overcoming every desire, overcoming every uh, shame, every fear, every guilt attached to our sexual experiences and our sexuality. And he overcame everything that causes us to look at sex and view it as gross. We're to look at sex and worship him, worship it in place of our God. He died, but then he rose again, overcoming our enemy and all of his lies. And because of that, we can live victorious lives of sexual expression, of freedom inside of God's design because Jesus was victorious over all of our sin, right? When we, when we tend to walk in our strength, we perpetuate this cycle of failing. When we lay our burdens, our past experiences, our shames, our guilts, our fears at the feet of Jesus, we begin to see healing, we begin to see help, we begin to see redemption and wholeness. And then we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are empowered to live the way that God intended. 
while also enjoying all that God created in a way that brings dignity to us and to others as God's image bearers and ultimately brings glory to God. And that's the design. The design is that we would walk out our sexuality. We would engage in sexual experiences inside of his design. And if we do that, we'll have joy. We'll have satisfaction. Not because it's, sex is so amazing that it solves all of our problems. Because in his design, we're putting a proper priority on sex and a proper priority on our Savior. And as we worship him, even sex becomes more joyful because we understand its place, we understand its context, we understand its priority. And so walking that out, empowered by the Spirit, what are some things we could do this morning? The first thing is this. Refuse to accept cultural expressions of sexuality, right? You've been empowered by the Spirit. Your sin has been overcome by the death, the blood, or the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It has been purchased by his blood, We'll celebrate that in just a moment. Refuse to accept cultural expressions of sexuality. Don't be drawn into the destructive narrative that our culture is telling us about sexuality. Either that it is in fact gross or that it should be worshiped as God because it is neither. Rather, it is a good gift given to us by a good God for the joy of our souls and for the good of all creation. Church, receive this freedom. Receive the freedom to express sexuality with enthusiasm, with excitement, with joy inside of God's design. Furthermore, don't let the sexual sins committed against you rob you of the joys that God has created you to experience sexually. Bring your burdens this morning, lay them at the cross. Receive the healing, receive the satisfaction that only can be found in Jesus. Can't be perpetuated in another sexual partner. Can't be perpetuated in that shining guy in shining armor that you hope to marry so that you can have all the freedom in sex that your heart desires. It'll still leave you wanting. Only Jesus can satisfy. Understand that sexuality through the lens of Understand, that sex, and understand sexuality through the lens of Jesus' gospel, not the lens of our culture. Dig in deep. Ask questions. Study. Spend time understanding what does Jesus declare in his death, burial, and resurrection about our sexuality? What does the scripture have to say about it? Second thing is this. Really simple. Repent. Repent of your abuse of God's gift of sexuality, right? Bring your sexual immorality into light. I had a really hard conversation with a really great friend last night about some things that uh, he had experienced and participated in as a a 13-year-old boy in eighth grade, right? And for years, was hidden, suppressed. Bring your sexual immorality into light. Because if I've learned anything in my Christian life, if I've learned anything in counseling people through their, their pasts, I've learned this. Things do not get better 
with time. Things do not get better. That is a lie. Things do not get better with time. Healing comes through exposure. Healing comes through exposure. And confess your sins. Confess them to your spouse. Confess them to your community. Confess them to God. Right? Because in hiding from that, we rob from an intimacy that God has so beautifully given us to enjoy with our spouse. Wouldn't that be painful? Sure. But it's worth it. I'll end with this. Um, Man, I think the best way I've understood in explaining this in a practical way, this idea of exposure and healing, right? If If I get a significant gash on my arm this afternoon while we're tearing down stuff from Missio Kids, one of the poles slips and slices my arm up pretty bad, right? I've got a couple options. I can throw a bandage on it, wear a long sleeve shirt and hope nobody sees it and hope that over time it gets better, right? In doing that, I'm risking that it further, that it doesn't get better. More often than not, it won't get better if it's of significant size, right? And so that deep wound will not get better with time. It will only get worse. Over time, infection could set in. Over time, further infection could set in. Over time, further infection could set in so much so that it only doesn't only affect that part of my body, it affects other parts of my body, right? Septus, like infection spreads all over my body and enters my bloodstream and enters every single aspect of my being. And I'm in ICU, laying on my deathbed, potentially having died because of a cut on my arm, right? Or I lose it, right? That's, that's an option. Or I quickly go get out the alcohol, the peroxide, the scrub brush, whatever's necessary. And I pour that junk on my arm and it burns like crazy. I scream like a little girl and I cry like an old woman, right? And I scrub it out. Scrub it out. It hurts like crazy for an instant. I do that again the next day. I do that again the next day. Put ointment on it, take care of it, expose it to air and contact. What happens? It eventually heals. It eventually heals. Man, our sexual brokenness left inside of us will only eat us up. But brought out into the light, brought out inside of the body of Christ, brought out to Jesus, the one who can bring healing. In doing those things, he does bring healing. I've experienced it in my life. I know many of you have experienced it in your life. Don't bear the burden of shame, of guilt, because of your sexual past. We all have a sexual past to one degree or another. But don't continue to carry the pain that was placed on Jesus. Receive his forgiveness and his healing this morning. Why are we spending four weeks talking about sex? Why? Paul David Tripp, you guys know my massive man crush on this brother. He is a pastor and Christian psychologist, writes many books. He has just a gift 
of making the grace of God extremely tangible and understandable, at least to me. And I've benefited from his ministry. He says this. He says, sex exposes our hearts. And in exposing our hearts, sex reminds us of how deep and comprehensive our need is for God's forgiving, transforming, and ultimately delivering grace. And it's so true, isn't it? So true. I'm gonna invite the band back up. I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna lead us in a brief time of response this morning. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for your gift um, of sending your son to die on a cross so that we can enjoy even the pleasures of sexual interaction with inside of your design. We're grateful for that. Heal our brokenness so that we would be able to reflect your glory in something that was meant to bring you glory and us your way. Amen.